0: An open window overlooking a modern Italian city, 1982. You can imagine the warm air and the smell of Rome or Florence or wherever it is. A woman begins telling a bedtime story. This is August 10th, the night of the shooting stars, which according to Tuscan lore is a night where you can look up and have a wish granted by that most fleeting of celestial phenomena. You might not think a war film framed as a bedtime story would work, but look up at the sky And if you see a shooting star, perhaps even that wish can be granted. The mother is telling a story to her infant child. The story of that same night, many years ago, during the last days of World War II. So we flash back and bear witness through the eyes of Cecilia, the six-year-old girl that this mother once was. Because she's relating her childhood memory, it sometimes feels like a very Italian stand-by-me. It's a technique that keeps the viewer at an intentional remove. Stories of what happened to other people are conflated with living memory, and often surreal because a child doesn't always understand what she's overhearing. Violence depicted in the film is often either off-screen, slapstick, or cartoonishly divorced from reality. A comment, it seems, on how memory can be transformed as a coping mechanism for the traumatized. The film, directed by Paolo and Vittorio Taviani, draws heavily on Italian neorealism. Listen to our Friendly Fire episode about Rossellini's Paisan, for an example from this genre. Because of that, we also get a mix of professional and non-professional actors depicting the struggle of the poor and working class. This struggle is filled with a unique wartime tension. Everybody knows that the war is ending, except there's an order of operations to the liberation of Italy. First the cities, then all of the other towns and villages in descending order, according to size, generally moving from south to north. It puts those who live in these small hamlets into a terrible waiting game, where they can stay put and become the objects of reprisal for retreating German troops or their own fascist neighbors, or flee in search of American forces. Our protagonists isn't the only perspective we get. There are vignettes where we meet the San Martino villagers who have chosen to flee, At one point, even going into their heads to hear their inner thoughts. There is unrequited love between elder villagers Galvano and Concetta. Will they be killed before expressing their true feelings for each other? We also follow the exploits of a father and son fascist enforcer team, whose private war alternates between savagery and grief. It's a film that never lets you feel at ease, because while the feelings are real, we are never to forget that we reside in somebody's fantasy. It makes emotional truth the currency rather than historical truth. And it turns out that in a war film, the exchange rate is roughly equivalent. It's a film that might just have to be seen to be understood because as they say, the war explains it. On today's Friendly Fire, we review Night of the Shooting Stars. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's working through the night because the Nazis and the fascists want our wheat. I'm Ben Harrison.
1: I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. What is this movie? I feel like maybe more than any other, it's so confounding.
0: You know how John and I always get excited about clothes in movies? This movie was the most excited my wife has ever gotten. (laughs) <laughs> by a clothes movie. She was like, This this movie looks like every pile of vintage clothing I've ever I've yeah. ever sifted through in a store. <laughs> World War Two, but everybody's in the eighties also.
1: <laughs> this is a lot like Red Cliff except instead of everyone being beautiful, the clothes are beautiful in this film.
2: I mean the people are beautiful too. Yeah. Those double breasted wide peak lapeled linen suits.
1: Look, man, I don't think anyone would call Dildo beautiful. (laughs) A man whose name is only one letter off of Dildo. (laughs) A man for whom someone (laughs) tried to cast the Italian John C. (laughs) (laughs) Riley.
2: He really is, although, you know, he uh, he provides some sex energy to the movie.
1: Yeah, he sure
0: does it is a very strange movie so the the like pitch in the in the production meeting and the development meeting is that it's the recollections of a mother uh of her time in world war ii when she was six and she's like telling it as a bedtime story to her infant baby
2: right and the infant baby we don't see until the very end of the movie the uh if if you believe that if you believe that premise, it would mean that this movie was set sometime in, like, 1965, maybe. But there's nothing in the beginning or the end of the movie to suggest that it's 1965 or that that matters at all.
0: There's that kind of, like, uh, retro-futuristic TV on the on the uh, credenza oh, in, yeah. the, in the bedroom set that... that- like it read, it read to me as like, oh, like that was like a cool vintagey thing in the eighties. But like the woman, when 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 she is finally revealed at the end, who's been providing the voiceover through the whole movie, is not like she's not like a twenty-eight year old new mom. She's she's quite a bit older than that.
2: Seems like it. Yeah. The, what's confusing about it is that the the little girl is the framework, the supposedly the framework. Of the movie her her sort of fantastical recollections of what it was like to be six during the war but there's a lot in this movie that happens where she didn't have eyes on it she's not experiencing it we see a ton of stuff that that we're not seeing through her eyes or her memory
0: right must have been related to her later or this is how she understood events to have transpired from her imperfect vantage point
2: yeah, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty flimsy. Uh, well, not flimsy. Let's say it's an unnecessary framing. Yeah, uh, we could have just watched a movie about this little girl. We didn't have to. We didn't have to l- look at it as though she's retelling it again to a six-month-old. So how are we even watching her tell it to the six-month-old?
1: I think it cuts to the core of like the intent of the filmmakers here because. Like if you were to just pitch the story of World War Two as told by people who did not fight in the conflict and were instead just caught up in it looking for a safe harbor, that is really interesting to me. Yes. Just on paper. But that is not necessarily what you get here. And I think it's because of all of the adornment that this film has given in its bookends and in its vignettes. And really, like, I think this is a, one of those films that where the beauty of its compositions and of its actors cuts against the inherent darkness of war that I think would have been useful if but if that were, were even the story that these filmmakers were trying to tell it's it is like one of
0: the most light movies that we've seen in a lot of ways yeah. and there's some really rugged shit in it. and I was like I was commenting to my wife as we were watching it like this is not the first movie I've seen this month in which a church full of people is killed.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Big month for you. You really picked the right job. Didn't you?
0: (laughs) I mean, that's kind of like one of the central, uh, events of the film is the, is everybody crowding into the cathedral and it being destroyed. And apparently that is based on a true event that happened in the hometown of the, of the brothers that directed this movie. Hmm. um but the like while it was attributed to the Nazis originally it turned out to have been uh an accidental uh u.s bomb that hit the church hmm. that was in San miniato the the real event that that this was based on but but in the film it's it's definitely the it's definitely the Germans that that do this horrible crime right
2: yeah I mean I think I think the uh i I think the the blowing up of that particular church is a is meant to stand in for the Germans sort of salting the earth in Italy as
1: they retreated right which they certainly did you see so few nazis in this film at all
0: yeah cuz they're they all have leaves and twigs taped all over their helmets so that they yeah. blend into the scenery
1: like it's it's a civil war adjacent conflict between townspeople and their familiars who have decided whether or not to join the fascists.
0: It made me think a lot about that. Like there, like there is a battle scene in the, in the movie, the, the fight in the, in the wheat field, which is one of the strangest battle scenes I've ever seen. But everybody knows each other. These are small town townspeople. They're yelling yelling at each other by name. (laughs) Right. I know, I know you, I know your first and last name. And, and then, it doesn't stop off.
1: them from killing each other
0: weirdly and like especially the the 15-year-old boy and his father who like the the 15-year-old boy seems like the most enthusiastic fascist of any of them
2: and the yeah. most hateful person in the movie. Right. This is Marmuji.
0: And and yet the movie like makes you feel really bad when he dies. Oh, I
1: didn't.
2: I didn't either. <laughs> okay, well, in that moment when he was in the tree and his father was pleading for his life, I was like, "'Do not chicken out, movie, do not chicken out, kill this kid now
0: I would have felt like the movie had chickened out also if the if they hadn't killed the kid, but i I felt the human- like he's potentially reformable as a fifteen yeah, year old right in a way that his father is not
2: and and the father's agony is super palpable i mean it's maybe one of the hardest things in the movie that that scene
0: scraping his face around in the dirt
2: like he really did that yeah that's hard to fake well and then shoots himself i mean that's all that was all like but by that point in time you get the feeling from the other actors that they've seen so much you know that that wonderful scene at the end um when the uh when the the woman who has been, who's obviously like upper class and has spent the whole sort of refugee period of this movie kind of dressed in a fur coat and standing somewhat apart from the rest of the, the crowd. And, and, and they are also keeping her apart because she's a member of a different class. And it's whispered about her that she was a peasant woman who married well and, and, Uh, in that in that last moment where her suitor the star of the film is like i'm going to take off my clothes behind this armoire Conchetta and galvano and Conchetta says i've seen enough shit already that i'm not i'm not going to be startled by a naked man
1: right uh do you think there's anything about your dick that would surprise (laughs) me after the atrocities i've seen yeah after watching a church get
2: get exploded but that 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 moment where they where the the partisans kill that kid in the in the tree as he's shrieking and his dad you know writhes in pain and they're just all completely unaffected by it and i guess it's because that's the guy who watched his pregnant bride get killed right or or yeah. carried her out in the cart so he's got no feelings left
1: that little marmooji had a had a young john connor amount of voice cracking going on in this film
0: yeah i mean i think that that's part of Part of what I found so affecting about that performance was that, you know, like, I just think about, like, myself when I was 15 and, like, how unwilling I was to, you know, be an authentic version of myself because I was so afraid that 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 self would be judged by everyone. And, like, to scream in, in fear in that way is... Uh, i feel, i feel like a brave thing for a young actor like that to do. It is a very desperate moment and and he really he really carries it over the line like that's a i i i felt that- p- moment of the movie uh more than almost any other
1: i want to be clear like i don't i don't have a problem with his performance at all by saying that I wanted the character killed i mean he did yeah. awful things up to that point he was he was an instrument in a lot of people's deaths and suffering. So when he went, I was fine with it.
2: Yeah. I thought he was, it was a very interesting portrayal, uh, like a a brave, brave acting job throughout. Mm -hmm. He's the only, he's really the only hysterical person in the movie. And he's hysterical with like fascist ideology and desire to, like wreak mayhem and then hysterical with self-preservation. So yeah, super great performance.
0: It's a strange thing to imagine a small town where everyone knows each other becoming so politically divided that half of the people are going to put on pants with stripes along the sides and, carry rifles around and enforce fascism and the other half are going to like disappear into the hills and become partisans that they know each other. They're, they all like so familiar that they, they know each other's first and last names and are are taunting each other based on like known personal truths. And then, and, and, and this is like how, how deeply divided they became during this war.
2: Well, you didn't, you didn't go to my high school reunion last year. <laughs>
0: were there a lot of fascists there
2: yeah
1: (laughs) there were i don't understand that like the fallacy of fascism to me is always like these guys are fucking agrarian farmers what is in it for them by supporting fascism in any way like any political ideology uh claims to be
2: on behalf of the working man i mean every single political disagreement we have in America today. If you go and sit in the meeting hall with whatever faction you're listening to, they're going to say that they're doing it on behalf of the, of the peasant, the farmer and the working guy. So it just depends on, on how you see that appeal and fascism's appeal is that it's on behalf of the little guy and it's a strong appeal And that that the enemy or the threat to us is uh, these sort of uh, limp-wristed communists who are going to come in and impose their uh, their anti-Italian ways. I mean, you can. It's just we we're seeing it. We're seeing it in the newspapers now. It's you on one side of the political divide. You look over and go, "How can they be taken in? How can they be so bamboozled?" Yeah, people have uh, a really short memory for this stuff. Well, but it's exactly what they're saying, you know. Yeah. They look over and they and say like all those people with college degrees are all are all brainwashed. Well, another friendly
0: fire in the books where John made a both sides argument. There it is, both
2: sides <laughs> doesn't make it not true. So yeah, I mean it's a it's an appeal to power on the small scale, like who's going to run this town, who's going to make the decisions and who are you, who are you allied with and who's going to win this conflict, right? If you're those, those fascists were going to look pretty savvy. Yeah. If Hitler swept down and pushed the Americans back into the Mediterranean.
0: You know, it occurs to me in thinking about it that that's not the only time in this movie that happens that a a group is subdivided in a really like momentous way the other being you know the decision of go to the church or escape and try and find the Americans like the like you know the camera pans across that room and it's like it's like two two different sports teams the way they they've like dressed themselves differently
2: yeah but weirdly, weirdly, we didn't get that scene that I kind of expected, which was the stay group, the go to the cathedral group. There was nobody in that group that was making an impassioned appeal, like right. "No, we have to stay. We'll be safe." And no one in the leave group was making an, a passionate appeal either. It was just sort of like, "Well, yeah. we're going go. to go
0: up to the individual." Yeah,
2: like everybody was. I'm going
0: to go, and if you want to come with me, you can.
2: Right, it was really it was really personal and it felt like maybe that was because in this small village everybody already knew kind of which people would stay and which would go. So there wasn't a ton of argument. Like if you're a stay, everybody already knows you're a stay.
1: When you're a stay, you're a stay all the way <laughs> <laughs> from your first cigarette to your last dying day. <laughs>
0: It's the, uh, that's the uh, theme song of all the anti-fascists in the UK right now.
2: Are you, Ben, would you be a stay or a go?
0: <laughs> I thought a lot about that. I mean, I think that you're taking a calculated risk on both sides, and it it is very clear to me that neither group had any way of knowing what the right choice was, you know? The idea that the clergy, and the, you know, attempt by most... Militaries not to blow up churches would be like, uh, you know, some kind of dome of of safety that you could put around yourself. Um, But the case is made that the Germans are are cranky because an officer got killed and they don't know who did it. So they might they might seek to, you know, punish the entire town based on that. I mean, and then on the opposite side, it's like, okay, so we're like going to fucking go crawl around in the hills at night and see if we can find some Americans like
1: <laughs> there's agency in that though that is attractive to me like yeah. y- you give up that agency by deciding to just throw in with the with the group and and just yeah. see what happens but you
0: have to keep in mind that they're also like starving at this point yeah and going into the hills might mean going away from reliable Supplies like that—they
1: sure do have some wheat confidence. If you're going to go up into those hills, yeah, you got to believe the wheat's going to be there.
2: I love that we are having a we are having a conversation between Ben and Adam on this show that is recapitulating the conversation in the basement of that room. Ben making the case to stay, Adam making the case to go. I don't know which way I'll turn.
1: John's like, I heard there's watermelons up in those hills. <laughs> I think you'd be motivated by the watermelons, John. Have you ever taken a bath in watermelons,
2: John? No, one day. I I have, I have cut open a watermelon and tried to pour an entire bottle of vodka into one, thinking that it would make a great watermelon-flavored vodka uh, yeah. dispensary, but what I discovered is a watermelon is already full. <laughs> <laughs> if you turn a bottle of vodka up, it's it's full of water already, so the vodka yeah. just pours out. It's the in sides. the name. Yeah. Uh, no, I will always join any group that is donning black cloaks. If the mm. o- other group is not donning black cloaks, <laughs> if both groups are donning a cloak of some kind, like blue and red, uh, th- there's a, there would be a, ch- a a difficult choice.
0: What did, would you join a group if you uh, that was donning black cloaks? If you also had to like perform a rite with a virgin in a, in a dungeon Hmm. to to be fully vested member? Depends on the right.
2: (laughs) Actually, I have to say if the group donned the black cloaks and then went into the church and the group that was leaving into the hills didn't don black cloaks, uh, I think I might be, I I, I guess I'm always going to leave. I'm never going to go huddle in the church.
0: The, The church is, is a, is a no go zone.
2: Yeah. It's just a, it's just that's a first principle for me. <laughs>
0: it's 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 putting all your eggs in one basket, and you know what happens to a bunch of eggs in a basket. A little, a girl, little girl sits, sits down, down on him by accident. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I loved that guy. I've got thirty eggs. If I eat one egg a day in thirty days, the war will be over. Yeah, and then he runs down the. He runs fifty feet down the road and dies.
0: Of salmonella, probably. That was an extremely <laughs> evocative
2: scene. That guy appearing on the appearing on the screen. His his five minutes of this movie were they they really rang a bell.
0: That's like a very like obsessive mindset type of math, right? The like I can create a a better condition in my external reality by a, like an arbitrary task that I have set for myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're starving and Salmonella-addled, I could see that being persuasive <laughs> logic.
2: Let me just name off some of the movies that came out this year. The same as the Night of the Shooting Stars. Okay. Gandhi. You are masters in someone else's home. Tootsie. I'm trying to stay calm here. E.T. There's nothing like that penis breath. Das Boot. I don't know who- Officer and a Gentleman. At the end of this weekend, you quit. Poltergeist.
1: Her life force.
2: Blade Runner.
0: Get off my plane! Wow. Big year.
2: And so, I mean, this was a uh, this was heyday of uh, of Hollywood. I think we we've all seen every one of those movies. Which I don't think I don't think I've seen that many movies made in the last five years. and you know and this is we're not even digging down into like world according to garp and annie and Mm. sophie's choice or whatever so this was a moment in cinema that this this movie really stands out pretty bold contrast to i mean this definitely feels like a small budget foreign film except this was italy's submission to the Academy Awards for Best Foreign Language Film that year.
0: It's really beautiful, like the like the way the colors are represented in the film stock is super nostalgic for me. Yeah, <laughs> like this is what movies looked like when I was growing up.
1: The filmmakers seem really conscious of light and its position in relation to the uh, actors in the scene. Like it, yeah. it looks just really thoughtful. and and it's a
0: really weird aspect ratio it's 1.66 to 1 so it's got like tiny little letter boxing on either side of the frame on my TV which I guess is probably 16 by
1: 9 those are the parts of the screen where John's thumbs normally cover when he Mm -hmm. watches it on his phone
2: Yeah, well it's just where the the pizza sauce smears obscure the the screen the entire movie felt like looked like and felt like if you took the part of The Godfather 1 where Michael Corleone goes back to Sicily. Yeah. Yeah. If you just took that and made a feature-length film out of it, the kind of... Because The Godfather is not a movie full of comedy. But when Michael goes back to Italy, there's just that intrinsic comedy to the I like way- that part
1: where
0: Yakety Sax plays and they <laughs> kill everybody.
2: no, 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 but when Michael goes to the when Michael Corleone goes to that cafe with his two bodyguards and they're talking about that girl and the father is like ah, and he goes inside and you hear a bunch of dishes breaking and Michael says call him back out here I want to meet his daughter like that is that's a kind of comedy and it's a, and it's a comedy that hinges on a sort of small town Sicilian the kind of drama that in one. In one way, you think of as kind of a, a cliche of of Italy or Italians that they yep. you know that they make a big production out of everything and everybody la da 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 da, but <laughs> everybody does la da 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 da. But you know the way it's portrayed in The Godfather by Italian actors, uh, directed by an Italian, it sort of transcends that, it transcends just m- mere comedy and this movie has that in spades i mean there's so many scenes that directly reference like when the basically like our entire troop of people are they're they're nominally escaping the nazis and the fascists and and wending their way through the a war zone to to get to the other line But they're also just all out for a stroll walking side by side along a country lane and talking and, you know, like it arm in arm kind of. And it's (laughs) it's evoking this this bucolic rural Italian world that I only know through film. But that feels very it feels very real and very. And very different, like very lighthearted or somehow all the, there's obviously tons and tons of drama between these people, but, but it's, it's a vision of a kind of the simplicity of rural life that that's also super appealing and it's really captured in the
0: movie. Yeah. It's very like, it's a very highly romanticized idea that it's hard to know to what extent it it really exists, I feel like.
1: I feel like the construction of the film gives that cover, though, because by, like, it's one thing for a filmmaker to romanticize this period, but that choice is is given to a child. And so, like... Right. It's... it's mem- yeah, and
0: she talks about, like, like I, I know that, like, these are my memories of childhood, and I'm sure it was, like, really horrible at times, but I was just having a blast. And <laughs> that's, like... Such a wild thing to think about, like that this would not be especially traumatic for a little kid.
1: They do this a couple of times in the film, like they go from from person to person, and you hear their inner monologue. And Cecilia's perspective, time and time again, is like, "This is fucking awesome. I'm right. I'm a I'm a kid out here in a war zone having the greatest. I got these time. fancy earrings. This yeah. is going great. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I think I want to be careful, or I want I want us to be cautious to not automatically think that this is is highly romanticized i guess what i'm saying about it is that every time i've seen this world represented this way and in this case by italian directors and italian actors filmed in italy in italian i don't know how much we because my instinct is to also say like oh this is super romanticized it's like it's like a, basically a field of dreams version of America where it's all in soft focus, but this may be actually a much closer representation of what life there is like. This might actually be cinema verite in a way, uh, including the comedy, you know, like including the, the lightheartedness. Cause of course it being Italian is different than being French or German. So, i was really taken in i was taken into the world
1: it's interesting to interrogate to what degree this stuff is romanticized in a film that depicts most of the people we get to know dying at some point in that wheat field
2: but there's also there's also some magical realism in it there there's stuff that's played for laughs
1: it almost felt like farce sometimes is that a, a quality of italian films of this time I think, I mean the guy that got killed with 15 spears
2: <laughs> and the
0: the Roman legion that comes out of nowhere and I guess it's the, I guess it's the partisans as, like that she is imagining as Romans because of the because of the pitchforks that they're using to bail the hay.
2: Right. Right. But also like this the symbolism of Roman legionnaires in an Italian film where both the legionnaire and the person they're killing are both Italians. Like there's just a lot that I don't I don't feel qualified to unpack in in how that would read to an Italian audience because I don't know if the Legionnaires are considered heroes either. Hard to know. Also, the Americans we you know we we hear about the Americans so much in this movie they're they're talked about over and over but we only ever see two Americans and they just feel like kind of stereotypes and also creeps or just like whatever just we never see a scene where the Americans come in and hand everybody a chocolate bar there's only one chocolate bar that makes an appearance a chocolate bar and a pack of camels
1: It it's a film about false hope in a lot of moments and that, that's a scene that maybe is the most emblematic of that the falsest of hopes.
2: Their worst battle and all of and the majority of the death happens after they've had that first contact with Americans. Right. Who are there to who, who, that's the, where they're supposedly going to find sanctuary.
0: And I guess partly because they're like walking around assuming that they're going to run into Americans when they run into some gendarme and it's instead the fascists.
2: Right. Right. You think when once they meet the first Americans, they're going to cross some imaginary line and then they're going to be behind yeah. the safe wall.
0: I had a question about the fascists because they're kind of in uniform. Are they Italian military or are they some kind of like
2: Volksturm? That's what it is. Yeah. One of the uh, the uh, the ploys of fascists in general and Italian fascists in in specific, uh, it's to militarize the entire nation. So they create 25 levels of police and gendarme. And, and, uh, I mean, even now in Italy, you have the Carabinieri, Carabinieri and the Guardi, the Garda and the, um, uh, I mean, there's, there's like state police, local police. Right. So yeah, I just, I felt like that was kind of an odd, ad hoc militia basically.
0: They all got the same pants, so
2: it's the pants, right That's how you make a police force. It starts with the pants, fascism pants but so we're this movie's set in what forty three I mean this is we we forget that the end of the war in Italy happened a long time before the end of the war in Germany, or it's easy it's easy to to think that this is all happening contemporaneously with. D-Day and the fall of Berlin. Right. But Italy was liberated by the by the allies you know a long time before before the war came to an end.
1: And in stages, like the idea that you could hear a church bell hundreds of miles away and and know that maybe your time is coming, maybe it's not, like that village by village aspect of of being freed is yeah like it's a pregnancy of stress that you never get in the film really until the end which uh in between which vignettes
0: of uh the rossellini film paisan uh does this take place because like right. that that was set kind of as the americans progressed up the boot
2: well, i think it's important to remember that most of the residents of a village like that would have never left san martino um their life experience. I mean, they know everybody from all the neighboring villages, but but yeah. they wouldn't have ever been to Florence or even to whatever the, the next biggest town probably.
0: I don't, I don't know if this is a truism in Europe, the way it is in the United States, but like the, like r- rural people tend to be more conservative in the United States and like the, the bigger a city is the more liberal it's it's politics seem to be. I mean, and that's obviously like an imperfect model, but uh, is that something that was true here? Like, were there a lot more kind of fascist types in, in rural places like this than, than in the big cities?
2: No, I think, I think it's much more that farmers are intrinsically conservative because that's a necessary quality to be a good farmer. You see radical farms, uh, but like land and farming, it just inspires people to kind of support the status quo. Uh, Most farmers aren't waiting around for farms to be collectivized. Right. I mean, workers are uh, laborers, but like in a small town like this where everybody is presumably sort of farming their their handful of hectares that make up their little wheat production what what we have now is a media culture where people that are living in environments like that can log on and connect their system of beliefs to a larger narrative but that larger narrative isn't really built into that group of beliefs you know rural people traditionally were they believed in god and they and they believed in private property and their life revolved around the seasons and the sun and they weren't part of a, a of a like a political narrative outside of being a dependable block of voters. Right. Um, and it's only in modern times that that you would put a group of those people together and bring them some f- philosophy of government from Germany and ask them to sign off on it. I mean, so much of this this theory, if you think about it, you know, fascism, communism capitalism, they were all developed in Germany.
0: <laughs> just... Thanks, guys. <laughs> the thing about fascism being kind of more angry at like outsiders or immigrants or the others or whatever seems seems strange in a place as culturally homogenous as a very small town in, in Italy. Like there's not they're not like a bunch of Jews that they're that are also living there, right? Right.
2: Yeah, but they've heard.
0: <laughs> they've, they've seen. They've seen about Jews in the newspaper. Yeah,
2: yeah. Italian fascism was not principally focused on anti-Semitism. The principal idea, I think, that governed Italian fascism was that Italy wanted to conquer, and that you would have a strong Italy by conquering Croatia and ethiopia and uh it was it was an expansionist ideology and i think you can you, if you go to a, a group of young men in a small town and say hey put on these fancy pants and <laughs> you know join us and we're going to go out and bring the you know make the mediterranean an italian lake again
0: or yeah we're going to turn it back into the roman empire
2: yeah, that's a real easy sell. And you can you can prop up any number of boogeymen in the form of international communism or just like people from Romania. I mean, you can you can make the bad guys anybody you want. It was all about Italian fascism was all about like we're going to get big. What, you know, watch us. Watch us as we get big. And then Hitler came into the picture and kind of fucked up Mussolini's big plan and you know and then that that's when Italians I mean there was always racism I think as a component of fascism because it was a nationalist mentality but it wasn't like a it wasn't a focused racism in the same way I
0: recently learned that uh, Mussolini's granddaughter is a uh, I guess a member of European Parliament yeah wow (laughs) and she's also a fascist
2: I think yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, it's like Marie Pen.
0: Yeah. She's like in the, in the Silvio Berlusconi party.
1: So that's amazing.
0: Yeah. That shit runs in the family.
2: You can whitewash that shit pretty easily. If you're in Italy and can, and can, can distance Italian fascism from Nazism and say, Oh no, 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 no. They were two totally different things. Mussolini made the trains run on time. I mean, I mean, that's kind of what we're doing globally right now. People are trying to take their little fascism and or their little, you know, their little nationalist impulse and distinguish it from all the bad. uh, You know, the bad cast of mid 20th century fascist attempts.
0: It's tricky. Like you can point to an atrocity by mid 20th century communist projects just as easily as you can mid-20th century fascist projects. Oh,
2: who's both sidesing
0: now? It's very easy to make the argument that no actual communism was ever attempted.
3: Oh! Who's all three sidesing
2: now?
0: (laughs) In the mid-20th century. It's a
2: hundred-sided
0: die! But, (laughs) not to say that that, uh, there's any reason to trust fascists, but there's plenty of blood on everybody's hands in, in the kind of middle of the last century
2: yeah i feel like the appeal is always i mean right now some of the some of the most active american fascists are just worried about um are worried about truth in video game journalism right, right? i mean it's you it always starts in some you can oh, start fuck. it oh fuck <laughs>
0: Should we, should we just announce now that we're all leaving Twitter? (laughs) Please don't dox me.
2: But, but if you, if you start, if you, if you, if you germinate an idea as uh, in its simplest form as that someone else is oppressing you. Yeah. And you take that into a small Italian town and you get, and you gather a group of kids around and you're like, do you want to be oppressed?
0: Hey, we uh, figured out why you're all so poor. Yeah, right. It's because we're not occupying Ethiopia.
1: I promise it'll help if we do. (laughs) (laughs) So
2: we have a clear, we have a couple of like telegraphed social relationships. We know that the guy in the white suit that plays the record Battle Hymn of the Republic as a prank to make the townspeople think that the Americans are coming. We know that he's sort of a, a bourgeois. His wife is a little shrill. They're dressed bu- like bourgeois. Um, but, she felt terrible about that though. <laughs> well, she did, but she also was, making where did he it, get that record? She was also making it all about her.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's your issue with that. That's great. <laughs> Um,
2: But so we know that they're like bourgeois in the town, but they don't command a ton of respect. They're not leaders. And we know that Galvano, we know Galvano, we can just tell from his, from his thousand yard stare that he's been other places, or at least he's, he's wise and people follow him, but we don't know him to be in any kind of leadership role in the town. He's never referred to as the mayor or anything.
1: You learn a lot about him right away in one of the first scenes when uh, when the priest comes by and the priest is like, hey, I think the church is the place to be. And I'm not only saying that because I run the church. He's like, "Uh, you guys should come on out and uh, and hole up there. And then everyone lines up to kiss the ring. And Galvano comes out towards the end and he watches the ring kissing and he like looks low key disgusted at what he's seen. Like you you understand uh, how he feels about his circumstances right there. and you know in that moment that he's not going to follow.
2: Right and and that he must command some respect in the town as a freethinker or as someone that's you know that maybe was in the army, maybe he fought in World War I. almost maybe certainly he did, although that's never that's never addressed directly. Is it his house that the, that everybody's hiding in? Oh, interesting.
0: Or are the Migliorati's the the prankster couple?
1: I don't think it's their house. It seemed like a, any house in a storm situation. Cuz we we know that he's lived in that village
2: his whole life because that's a big part of the plot between him and Concetta and we never see she was clearly married to somebody rich and that was you know that was a devastating moment in his life and all of that is just tantalizingly implied we don't get any backstory of any of these people we're just left to learn about them through their actions
0: yeah like the only backstory you ever really get is in that scene with them in the bedroom at the end which is like you know like it's an hour and a half into a hour and 45 minute movie that two characters talk about their past
2: yeah, that they've been kind of looking at each other through the whole movie and and I was convinced that they were that they had just met or that they were yeah, you know that that she was she was gradually sort of uh, as an outsider kind of melting into the group and then it's revealed like, "Oh no, she she made a choice early on in life to follow wealth" And now she's cast in with this lot of villagers that she's known her whole life and they know her and think of her in a certain way. And she has always thought of herself as above them. And now she's dependent on them. I mean, all of that was just that's a huge part of the plot of this movie that is revealed in the last 10 minutes.
0: Pretty wild for a six-year-old to have remembered all that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They cut to her hiding in the wardrobe, like, looking in on them. (laughs) Yeah, talk about an omniscient narrator. Yeah, big time. How does she know? I like that part of the film the best. That moment in the bedroom with Galvano and Concetta and the explanation of why they never got together all those years before. And, like... I think the moment that I felt the most in the entire film, a film made up of scenes where people are dying en masse, is that moment where Galvano doesn't want to go home. He wants to live in that moment in this village that, that he had his time with Conchetta, and when he sees Conchetta get up on the wagon, he knows he, like, as hard as he, as he tries, he can't hold on to that. Yeah. It's slipping through his fingers.
2: Do you think when they got back to the village that he and Conchetta cons- continued their relationship, or was that a was that a war zone moment?
1: I think the I think it was a war zone moment, and I think that's why he fought so hard to a, a war
0: zone bone, <laughs> a
1: zone bone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a
0: I can get with bone.
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> well, except that that clearly her husband and her wealth and power are gone. Um, and that was part of why she was where she was. I don't think any of them, they all, they all march off back to San Martino, uh, kind of thinking like, Oh, well, we'll just go back and get, get on with our lives. I don't think, I don't think they're ready to go back and I don't think they're ready for what they're going to find.
1: The thing that predicts the future is that Conchetta gets on the wagon without Galvano, I think that's what tells us that they're not uh, going to be see. a thing when I they see. go back to town. Yeah. If they had remained together arm in arm, I think that's a plausible outcome.
0: Right. What did you make of the dumping rain in the sunlight thing?
2: I felt like it was another component of magical realism. Yeah. Uh, there are three or four of those in the film where, we're, where, it's, where we suddenly cut to something that's a, that's a little bit allegorical.
0: Right, the Sicilian girl imagining that she's met a bunch of Sicilian-American GIs who are going to take her to Brooklyn, but really she's been shot in the head by Germans.
2: And what was crazy about that was that then when the Germans, when they were revealed to be Germans, they said, oh, well, at least she died instantly. Right. And we spent, we spent uh, quite a while with her conversing with them conversing with them and convinced and she was convinced they were a Sicilian. So when did that happen? In what timeline? Yeah. Again, magic. What does it mean? I like magic in a movie like this. I feel like the whole setting is kind of magical and it's just so, I guess maybe magical isn't the word, but like Italian cinema seems very comfortable with surrealism. Yeah. And verging between these, these two these two states or multiple states. It's not crazy. Like when we watched, um, last week when we watched red cliff, there's some magic in that.
0: Right. A totally different kind of magic,
2: totally different kind. And it's not, and it's, and it's left to your imagination. Like, is that overt or is it just, it's there. If that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for something, if you're looking for the the outcome of that battle to be inevitable because it's what god wants then you have your clue um right. but in this movie it's it's there just to partly i think because we're 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 expected to look at this through the eyes of a 6 year old but partly it's just there for the fucking love of magic
0: yeah it's uh it's interesting how what magic looks like is So different from culture to culture.
1: Yeah.
2: Did we have a moment of pedantry? Oh, shit.
0: Man, I had a really hard time. There's not really anything written about this
2: movie on IMDb, so... Have we ever had to come up with our own moment of pedantry?
1: Uh, I suppose we could. Oh, I've got one here. It's it's from... (laughs) Turkfan69 The moment of pedantry goes like this None of this happened (laughs) Turkfan69 is just
0: not convinced That anything ever happened
1: The Turks are at it again
0: (laughs) Here's here's a moment of pedantry Girls in 1943 Italy Didn't wear white socks With wedge heel sandals (laughs) Mm.
1: Yeah Can't do that I feel like uh
2: I feel like my moment of pedantry is Galvano finds the pack of camels. He puts one between his lips. Oh
0: yeah, he gets lightheaded without actually smoking.
2: Yeah, he never lights it and it's somewhat doubtful that he we don't see him or anyone else really smoking in this movie. So yeah. where did the lighter come from? And and we don't really even see him light it, so
1: is he just yeah. drawing on a dead cigarette?
2: That's a strong smoke. I feel like I need to sit down.
1: <laughs> I think that would be my moment of pedantry. This is a film set in Italian, cast of Italians, and no, so few people are smoking. It's unbelievable. <laughs> 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 Took me out of the film completely. Here, here. Where were the
2: cigarettes?
0: <laughs> the, the one costume detail that I really loved in this movie that... Uh, um, you know I think I don't think any of the costumes are meant to be particularly period appropriate but I loved that the mother and the daughter were wearing dresses made from the same fabric yeah that felt like uh, you know a nod to realism like that they're they're rural folk who you know like oh we got some fabric I'm gonna make myself a dress and with what's left over I'll make you a dress
2: I wasn't a hundred percent clear that they were actually mother and daughter, or whether that wasn't just a um, like a dress. Wh- wh- whether they both found or they both
0: shop at the same store.
2: <laughs> well, or like the or like the woman had a child's dress or something. I didn't. I, I that w- the woman with the birthmark or the scar. She played a really interesting role in the movie, and I I wasn't clear what her relationships like. Her husband was off at war, but I I. I wasn't I wasn't clear I guess she and the little girl had a mother-daughter relationship didn't they
0: yeah it it might be unusual from your perspective because she's actually like a, a parent who's present in her daughter's right, life right, and, that must be it it seems so strange you
2: know, to me given how much time I, I spend in uh, opium dens <laughs> yeah every time a cigarette appeared in this movie I was like when are they gonna put it out on a child's forearm <laughs> Every cigarette I ever saw, that's what happened.
0: Yeah. it's a, It was a different time, John. Yeah, I guess so.
2: I guess so. Parenting, am I right?
0: <laughs> if anybody wants to understand that joke, become a donor to Friendly Fire and then listen to our Terminator episode, or
2: Terminator 2 episode. Or watch Breakfast Club. <laughs> Breakfast
0: Club is canceled, John.
2: Is Breakfast Club a war movie? What?
1: <laughs> Sign up for Friendly Fire After Dark. When you think of the comparative power of an American cigarette versus a, like, long, skinny Italian cigarette, what we see from Galvano's face is that American cigarettes are so strong, so fucking strong, you don't even need to light them Mm. to get the effect. And that really felt to me like an apt comparison between Italian neorealism war films and what we get on the American side. And I think after my experience with Night of the Shooting Stars and with films like Paisan and even like there are American neorealism war films, like I would call M.A.S.H. one of them, that I don't think that this is a flavor that works for me. And that's not to say that it doesn't have its place or its audience with anyone else, but... I just had a hard time figuring out what to do with this story. And I think it says a lot that, that my favorite part was that part at the end that had nothing to do with the war. It had to do with, with unrequited love and a, and a relationship that was put off for so long. between. Wait, can, can we stop
2: right there? Unrequited love?
1: Yeah, that's how I said it. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best
2: podcast in the world (laughs) can we start using that Ben and unrequited
1: love
0: Um, if it ever comes up again I'll I'll do my best to remember
1: go on Adam my point is my point sir (laughs) is that uh, this is analogous like the idea of American cigarettes versus Italian cigarettes makes me think of the difference between Italian films and American films and my preference is specific in this case but as it is, like, the film was very well made and beautiful, and so I cannot savage it with my review. I'm going to give it two and a half packs of American cigarettes as a result. Damn. That is a brutally low rating, I would say. It's it's one of those ratings that just means it's not for me. And I think you did savage it, Adam. No, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, Adam. Like, these are personal ratings. I don't think they're... I don't think they are about necessarily about the quality of the film, but how a person interacts with that film. That's why we all get a crack at at rating them.
0: It was meaningful to me. And I think that there are moments where the device of this being told through the, the recollections of an older woman about an experience she had when she was six doesn't entirely work, but I think that um this is a perspective that I think should and can be in more of the cinema of war the like the perspective of non-combatants but also of of children and and you know people who are subject to war without being participants in it and um and I really I really loved that about it and I loved the there are a bunch of different set pieces in this film, and I think that there are a few that are a little clunky and, and don't work, but generally I thought it was really terrific, and I'm really glad we watched it. So I'm going to give it four, whatever, what are we writing? With? American cigarettes?
1: cigarette packs.
0: Four packs of unfiltered American camel cigarettes. This is Turkish tobacco, right?
2: Yeah, no Turks number 69 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah that's what it says on every pack
2: (laughs) well i am uh i am with you ben and and um i really enjoyed this movie it is an extended dream sequence and the dreamy character of it uh it never abates really there's violence in it but it's dreamlike violence there's futility and fatalism it's, I think it's important for us to watch war movies that focus on the civilian experience. And this one really captures something about that, an aspect of it. We're on our own now, kind of as the war wanes down, no matter who your alliance was with. Like, there are, there are overt fascists in this movie, but we have to take into consideration that everyone in this movie was at least living under fascism Uh, peacefully and without much resistance until very recently like the the fascists aren't the anomalous group they would have been the mainstream cadre until until just the events of this uh, of this film so watching the watching half of these people kind of say well i guess we're on our own now so let's go figure this out it's a component of, of wartime, and I think what happened in Italy was maybe the most peaceful transition that you could expect in a war. I think the German civilian population at the end of the war, I mean, if they were on the side that encountered the Russians, they did not have, as, they did not have any bucolic walks holding hands on their way to enemy lines. They were savaged. But this uh, this film resonated with me. I really enjoyed being in the space of it and with these people. I agree that the, the the plot of the of looking at it through the little girl's eyes was superfluous, but I really liked that little girl and her kind of snarky and fun loving attitude to being six years old in a war. Um so I'm gonna give it like four unopened packs of American cigarettes. I'm not talking about the, the half assed soggy pack of camels we see in this film.
1: Wow. You're talking hard pack. Huh? I'm talking
2: the virgin unopened American camel, non-filter cigarettes that these GIs would have been pulling out of their sea rations. Cause I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a strong movie and it, and it contextualizes war in a, in a way that I, I felt good about.
1: Well, there you have it. You can either side with a couple of guys who like a movie where a group of kids are jacking it to a girl just trying to pee or, uh, or with me. Someone who didn't really care for that movie. It's up to you. <laughs> ben, who's your guy? Oh, man. On that note, it's one of those kids jacking it, right? uh sick fuck <laughs> um so i guess we decided that the older couple
0: is not the Migli- migliaratis that uh, that play the prank but uh as we discussed before the wife really makes it about herself and her shame and uh and and, th- and the wife of the guy that plays the uh the the prank with the music is definitely my guy <laughs> I felt like her. I felt ashamed of of him as well. Uh, and then, and and also like the wild overestimate about how ma- mad everybody is about it. That's like that's something I do all the time about everything. So <laughs> when she's like apologizing that kids like nobody gives a shit.
1: <laughs> ben, my guy was her husband.
2: Wow. <laughs> wow.
1: And the reason is is like I that acute sensation of, like, doing a prank and then immediately feeling regret about doing a prank that you uh, didn't know was going to be wrong at the time, but then you're made to see that through someone else's eyes, someone that you yeah, trust yeah. and love. Like, ouch,
0: that's a scorcher. There are a couple scenes in that movie where where he does a joke and then she yes-ands the joke and then he, like, gives her the side eye, like, why are you yes-anding <laughs> that joke? That was fine as it was. You don't need yeah. to add anything to it.
1: That also makes him my guy. Yeah.
0: I said the beginning and end of that joke.
1: (laughs) Get your hat off my hat. No runners in this marriage. Yeah. Why are they even together? (laughs) They look good together. The Migliriatis are fighting again. (laughs) (laughs) She wanted someone to make her laugh, but not like that. (laughs) John, who's your guy? My guy was
2: Dante, the, uh, the leader of the rebel band.
0: Paisano numero uno.
2: Yeah, we only see him uh, a couple of times. And he's the one whose, whose plan is in this space where it seems like it's a matter of hours before the American troops overrun this area. He's still got a plan that he needs to deny the fascist's wheat. He's like we've got to harvest this this wheat quick. Yeah. Because the the fascists are going to harvest this wheat and that will decide the the turn of events here and it feels like they could have just chilled out for like another day and like the if the fascists were gathering this wheat it's not going to make a big difference in the in the way the war goes. Yeah, but, but it just, it felt like the type of sort of futile, not futile with a D, but futile uh, <laughs> gesture that you often see with people who are righteous, where it's like, we're doing this for the people. And so therefore it's, you know, we're going to do this, this weird Pizon gesture rather than just like hang out in the trees and. And snipe fascists as they go by, which is probably what we should be doing instead, but he you know but he he had that physicality that apl- that aplomb that would make people follow him, even though he had a kind of dumb idea here. Adam you hinted at it or said it uh, overtly, but that that battle scene in the wheat field where basically people were popping up like whack-a-mole. And you had, you had two armies or two, two like groups fighting each other and everybody was down under the level of the wheat and they were yelling insults at each other. And then somebody would pop up and somebody else would shoot them weird. It was a weird and wonderful, awesome battle.
1: The moment where the two sides almost share a canteen after killing grandma. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> and then they realized like, Oh shit. Yeah, I'm not gonna you. give you my fucking water. <laughs>
2: Blam. Uh, anyway, so he's my guy just because I don't know, it feels like I it feels like I already do a podcast with that guy. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he's like uh, he's just somebody that keeps reoccurring in my life over and over where it's like, "Hey, we could do a we could do like a normal thing here or we could do this inexplicable thing that would that's telegraphing our virtue." Why don't we do that? You know what I thought a lot about
0: watching all this wheat harvesting and then like whacking it when it was on the ground on the on the blanket? This is the stuff that civilization was built on, like the idea of cultivating wheat. If I had been around when they first got the idea to do this, I would have been like, this is too much trouble. It's not worth it. Yeah. What's the upside? Why don't we just eat
1: mice? We'll fucking continue to hunt and gather and it's going to be fine.
2: That's where I would have been.
1: We have a girl totally willing to bust open some eggs on our behalf. (laughs) Couldn't be easier to eat eggs.
2: I have had this feeling so many times when you really think about growing wheat, harvesting wheat, sorting wheat, grinding wheat into, into flour.
0: Right like there's like we're we were watching them like like separating the wheat from the chaff it looks like incredibly hard work where you definitely
1: get blisters and that's not even you like you can't even eat that yet no. like you're still pretty far away there's six steps to get to the edible part one person had to go down all of those time consuming steps to even get close to something edible
2: right they had to do it ten thousand times even to figure it out but that's not even accounting for the fact that they all year long they're thinking about growing this weed and growing it and harvesting it i mean it's it's a lot of work and then what do you get bread what the fuck is bread i mean i guess you do get <laughs> spaghetti and i and if you're making spaghetti out of it it suddenly makes a lot more sense to me <laughs> i would do all that work for spaghetti but they
0: didn't have spaghetti until like the 15 or 1600s right like they had to they had to steal that
2: idea from the chinese well it took a long time but they got to spaghetti and that's all that matters god bless spaghetti
0: italian food is so weird to think about like how much of it is based on like all like all of the new world foods that are like so so essential to italian cuisine like peppers and and tomatoes and stuff and then it's such a weird it's such a weird thing that it even exists it's amazing It's delicious. I'm
1: thinking the same about our show at this moment in time.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everyone. Producer Rob's here. Next week, we're going to break format a bit and drop in one of our live episodes from the Tour of Duty. So be on the lookout for Raiders of the Lost Ark, recorded live at Largo at the Coronet in Los Angeles, California. As always, Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Ditmore. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate. You'll gain access to all of our bonus episodes in the Pork Chop feed, as well as all of the bonus materials offered by Maximum Fun. You can also leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen to your shows. Or you can share it with a friend. If you're sharing online, make sure to use the hashtag Friendly Fire. You can find Ben on Twitter at Benjamin AHR. Adam is at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week.